0: Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, lover of old books and art, and thus very excited to welcome our guest today, Victoria Emily Jones. Uh, Victoria is a freelance editor and a writer on Christianity and the arts. Um, she's living in central Maryland and she blogs at artandtheology.org. She serves on the board of the Elliott Society, a nonprofit that promotes spiritual formation through the arts. And as art curator for the Daily Prayer Project. And she's a contributor to the visual commentary on scripture and Artway. Victoria is interested in exploring how art of all disciplines, but especially visual art, poetry, and music, can draw us into a deeper love of God and neighbor. Today, Victoria is here to talk about medieval and contemporary art of the Annunciation, um, including both visual and literary forms. And don't worry, um, this is going to be chock full of super interesting things, but it will all be posted on oldbookswithgrace.com. So any of the references we make today will all be available on the blog. Um, Victoria is also going to share some resources with us at the end of this talk. So all of this is at your fingertips. And um, also for those of you listening on audio only on podcast, this talk is going to be up on YouTube as well, since there's so many delightful visual references we're making. And we'll do our best to uh, describe the art so that if you prefer just listening, you're going to get all the good stuff. But if you want to see it in action, check out my YouTube channel at Old Books with Grace. And um, so welcome, Victoria. I'm so glad you're here with us.
1: Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation.
0: So before we talk about the enunciation, I have a couple questions I like to ask when um, guests come on old books with grace. And the first one is What is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago?
1: Okay, so favorite is hard. Yeah, okay. A favorite share...
0: is hard. I agree. It could <laughs> be like share top. A
1: favorite. Yes. yes. I'll share uh, a book that has been influential to me has been. The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, which is by the 17th century Carmelite monk. He was a lay brother at this monastery in France. And the reason why it was influential to me is because I feel like it really taught me um, the concept of praying without Mm ceasing. You know, this book, he goes into, um, he discusses how we are to abide with God throughout the day and just communing with him in our everyday tasks. And so like his primary task of the monastery was working in the kitchen. And so as he'd be doing the dishes or cooking, he said he, it, it would be for him a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. And so it really kind of shifted my concept of, well, prayer is um, a discipline where you set aside time to um, spend with God. It can also be, um, have take on a more integrated form in our uh, daily life. And so, yeah, that's one of my favorites.
0: That's great. I love that. Okay. Question number two, which literary character do you most identify with and why?
1: huh um i would say in many ways uh but not always anne shirley from anne of green oh i love that (laughs) yeah that was uh, another one of my favorite old books um But yeah, I was introduced to that as a child, and I guess I'm not quite as dramatic, nor is my imagination quite as vivid, though it was when I was younger, but I feel like I really identify with her headstrong nature, and just her love of reading, and um, her appreciation of beauty and nature, and in literature, and uh, her curiosity, and sensitivity, and...
0: (laughs) That's great. That's an excellent answer. I think Anne Shirley is a delight, so... (laughs) <laughs> good a good identification so now um on to the topic of our discussion which is the annunciation um, but i have two things that i want to get out of the way before uh, we dive in with victoria one for um, the non-liturgical listeners and one for the liturgical folk first what is the annunciation And the Annunciation is the ancient name for the moment in the Gospel of Luke when the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary. And I thought I'd just briefly read that from Luke chapter one um, so that we can hold this all in our minds while we listen to Victoria's wisdom about um, these pieces of art. So this is from Luke chapter one, starting at verse 26, and it's In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So this is a familiar scene, right? And um, my liturgical friends now are probably wondering why Victoria and I are doing this episode uh, in November when the feast day of the Annunciation falls upon March 25th in the liturgical calendar. We're doing so because we both believe that the Annunciation is a powerful figure for human learning, for the reception of God, for the complexity of submitting to God, yet consenting with our whole minds and bodies I grew up in an American evangelical church, going to the kind of, uh, in a a household, going to the kind of churches where Mary was merely another uh, character in a Bible full of characters. Um, And as I've grown and encountered art and literature more fully, I've realized that devaluing Mary in the Annunciation like that is a mistake. This first began to dawn on me in Julian of Norwich's A Wonderful Revelations of Love, which I have talked about probably ad nauseum on this podcast, but you're getting it again. So (laughs) Julian receives showings, um, sights and sounds from God. And the first thing she sees is Jesus bleeding on the cross. But the second thing she sees is the annunciation. And that scene is so important to Julian that she mentions it time and time again, it becomes this sort of paradigm for reception of divine truth. Um, Mary is little and limited in her humanity. She's a created person, but she embraces that createdness so fully that she's completely open to her creator. And Julian explores that revelation in order to also open herself up to the truths that God gives her. Since Advent is only in a few weeks, and like Mary gestating Jesus, we're all waiting and learning how to receive God all the time. We thought it would be a really nice kickoff to the holiday season. Mary and this story have so much to give us. So with that in mind, Victoria, let's start. What do you want to share with us today?
1: Yeah, so first I want to say... um, to give a a little bit of a sense of my religious upbringing, it was similar to yours, American Evangelical Christianity. And so I grew up in a Baptist church and I'm currently in a Presbyterian church. And so in my tradition, there's not a whole lot of talk about Mary. Um, The only song I could think of about Mary that we sing is Mary, Did You Know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is a less than like great song, really. (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, of course I always you know, knew that Jesus had a mother um, and she would show up in Christmas pageants. But I had never really um, had a meaningful encounter with that. I never really, yeah, dwelt with her story at all or considered how the role that she played in salvation history or how she is an exemplar of of obedience to God. And so I feel like um, studying historical Christian art and literature in college really started to open me up to to the wonder of this idea that um, mary is not just the mother of jesus she's the mother of god which is what um, the council of ephesus said in 431 and so in orthodox christianity that's one of her primary titles is theotokos mm-hmm. it means god bearer or mother of god and so that's just crazy and so i feel like um, visual art and poetry and other art forms can help us dwell more intently with this mystery and also get a sense of the bodiliness of the incarnation. Yes. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I wanted to just discuss a few images. I, um, I wanted to start off with one that I think is rather fun from the middle ages. Um, It is um, an allegorized image that shows, um, it's an allegorical representation of the Annunciation as a unicorn hunt. And so (laughs) we might be thinking why? (laughs) This image is so strange to modern viewers, um, but it just goes to show, give you a sense of the medieval imagination. And so during the middle ages, the unicorn was um, thought of as a symbol of Christ. And that um, derives in part from this old text called the Physiologus, which was written in Alexandria in Greek in the second century. But it was translated into all these vernaculars all over Europe and um, the Middle East. And so it circulated. And what it was is it was this compendium of animal lore um, that they um, so some of the animals are real real animals some of them are fantastical and they would uh, attach these legends to them or they would moralize certain of the animals behaviors and so the legend goes that the unicorn um, could only the unicorn is a wild animal and it could only be tamed uh, by a virgin and so when it when it sensed a virgin nearby, <laughs> a chaste young woman, it would go and lay its head in her lap and making itself vulnerable. And so this, of course, was read as an allegory of the incarnation, how Christ came to the Virgin Mary. Um, and so Martin Schoengauer is one of the many artists in the 15th century who painted this allegory. And so if you're looking on the YouTube right now, I'm showing an image from two of the exterior wings of an altarpiece from a Dominican monastery in Colmar, France. And this is from around 1480. And it shows um, Gabriel has entered this enclosed garden and he's blowing his hunting horn. And out of his horn is coming this banderol, this scroll with this inscription of the greeting he's giving, the Ave Maria, Gratia Plana. And um, so he, and then on the other side, the other wing, you see the unicorn with a, a long horn, like a narwhal <laughs> 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 is how it, unicorns are often depicted in Europe. Um, he's laying in the lap of the Virgin Mary. And um, all around, you'll see these other inscriptions Um which um, help us interpret the image. And so this is another thing that's a little bit different in um, biblical interpretation today, or maybe not depending on your tradition, but in the middle ages, um, theologians would often read a lot um, of the new Testament into the old. um, And so they would develop these typologies by which I mean, they would read different objects or events in the Old Testament as prefigurements of things that would happen um, under the New covenant. And so one of the uh, so Mary, um, there were a lot of metaphors for her that were drawn from Old Testament texts. and this image gives us some of them. and one of them is Gideon's fleece. You can see the fleece of the of the lamb lying. Um, I was by wondering Mary. what that
0: was. Next <laughs>
1: So the inscriptions are all Latin, and the Vellus Gideonis is a uh, because Mary, uh, the dew fell from heaven onto Mary, and so that's why she's Gideon's fleece. And then um, behind her, there's a basket of the of manna. This is the golden jar of manna, which is mentioned in Hebrews, that was kept in the tabernacle, and that's because um, she was she was called the um, the jar of manna because the bread of life from heaven was inside her. She held um, the bread of life in her womb. And um, in the middle of the image, you can see... Well, so this altarpiece was actually disassembled shortly before the French Revolution. And the cutting job was a little haphazard and so some of the images cut off at the top but you can see the flowering rod of Aaron which was was another symbol for Mary and the burning bush was an especially important symbol and continues to be in Christian orthodoxy Mary as a burning bush because the fire of divinity um was in her womb but she was not consumed by it and so um so these are just some images to dwell with the mystery and then of course um a lot of them relate to her virginity like the fountain the sealed fountain that's an image from um the song of songs where the groom compares his bride to a sealed fountain and the closed door as well. And so symbols of her virginity and what I think is really charming are these four hunting dogs that are driving the unicorn to marry. Um, their names are mercy, justice, peace, and truth. I love and that. Yeah. Those are four of, uh, the divine attributes, which are taking, taken from a verse in Psalm 85, and so this idea that um, these virtues, which are coming to fruition in the incarnation, and um, yeah, and as I mentioned before, this is an inc- this is taking place in an enclosed garden, which in Latin is called the Hortus Conclusus, and that appears a lot in sermons and theological treatises um, as an image of the Virgin. Um, again, because uh, (laughs) she had not had sexual relations and so she was a closed garden. And so, yeah, this is an image that kind of um, maybe in an overly didactic way shows us, um, gives us a sense of like some of... um, yeah, just just the mystery of the incarnation and the person of Mary. And I think it's really fun because, hey, a unicorn yes. in a religious <laughs> painting. I but. actually
0: love that because, it, I mean, well, first of all, this is like the perfect package of the medieval mind. Medieval people were obsessed with allegory they were so into like the more meanings you could layer on something (laughs) the more pleased they were with it so this image is basically incorporating every possible um, virgin reference that they can in allegory (laughs) which is really fun but also um, I think that uh, the fantasy aspect of Christ as the unicorn is something um, that Echoes out of a long time ago, and and is not uh, something that we we don't really combine like fantasy and Jesus very often today. And so to see that is uh, just both charming and and kind of strangely inspiring to me. Where it's like the creativity of that um, and the freedom in that, where the artist is enjoying this sort of impossibility of the incarnation, the strangeness of the incarnation, Um, I think that's so lovely.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely, and um, this, there's another, um, also from the 15th century, there's another image that I wanted to discuss, and it's one of Fra Angelico's several Annunciation paintings, Um, He painted this several times. He was a Dominican friar who lived in Fiesole and then moved to Florence. But um, this Annunciation was painted around 1426 for the convent of San Domenico in Fiesole um, near Florence. So actually this is another Dominican altarpiece as it so turns out. Um, And this is the main panel from that altarpiece. And um, his... His interpretation of the Annunciation was greatly influential um, and you see a lot of later artists inspired by it. And even I found a lot of contemporary poets inspired by his depictions of the Annunciation. And so it shows Mary seated in a chair that's draped in cloth and she's underneath the portico, portico of this domestic space and um, Gabriel has just crossed this threshold um, into her space. So from heaven to earth, and he stepped into to human space and he, Gabriel is kind of bowing down um, or bending over um, in reverence. And he has his arms crossed, which is a gesture uh, of humility and submission. And Mary herself is mirroring that gesture with her arms crossed over her chest. And so what's happening here is, you know, he's, Gabriel has given her um, this invitation to partner with God in this, um, in this marvelous work. And, and, and then he waits for her answer. And so he, he's deferring to her and she um, and, and she says, yes. And so she, the crossed arms is her, you know, submitting to this, this will of God that has been revealed for her, this um, plan that he, God has for her life. And so um, notice the the very vivid uh, blue mantle that she's wearing. This painting was actually just restored a few years ago, and it is so gorgeous in its restored state. The colors are really, so bright, really vibrant. And so her robe was painted with lapis lazuli pigment, which was a very expensive blue pigment. And, and the blue had come to um, be one of the colors that Um, was associated with the Virgin Mary, and it's supposed to evoke the idea of heaven. And you see that on the ceiling of this portico, on these arches, there's this star-studded blue. Um, So it's like a a vast, like, heavenly space. And so this is kind of like paradise coming into, um, paradise being reopened. And so, um, yeah, what... So you'll see on the left uh, is uh the archangel michael driving adam and eve out of paradise and so this is another example of how um medieval and renaissance artists tend to read things intertextually and tended to um combine different narratives or see the narrative of scripture as one whole story and so here they're um comparing um, it's kind of like a type and anti-type, and so you have the expulsion of humanity from the garden, and then, as I said, the garden being reopened to humanity through God's initiative to and through through Mary's yes. And so, one of the other metaphors for Mary that's very common is as the second Eve. And so in the Bible, we see that um, Jesus Christ is called uh, the second Adam or the new Adam. And so this is an extension of that idea. Mary is, um, she's undoing, um, she's reversing the effects of the fall. She's, um, yeah, the incarnation is something that... yeah, it, it, it had to happen in order for us to, to re-enter paradise. And so there's this, um, I like how the arts lecturer, John Skillen, puts it. He says that our undoing in the expulsion is undone by the annunciation. And so it's this idea that whereas Eve disobeyed God and caused sin to enter to the world into the world, Mary obeyed God. And that's what led to the world's
0: redemption. And so... Um, you had sent me this lovely. Uh, when you had sent me this picture, you sent along with it this wonderful poem by um, Robert Southwell, who yes. uh, lived in. Uh, he he was uh, from about fifteen sixty one to fifteen ninety five, and um, and I'll I'll just read the the first um, part of it, the first stanza, because it is such a f- fascinating reflection of of this which is um spell eva back and ave you shall you find the first began the last reversed our harms an angel's witching words did eva blind an angel's ave disenchants the charms death first by woman's weakness entered in in woman's virtue life doth now begin and it continues on but this um this cleverness that he begins with of the reversal so eva is latin for eve and ave is latin for hail as in the angel salutation to mary and so this idea of the of the second eve and the reversal of um, of the the curse of eden through mary is such a, this is such a potent representation of that, um, th- both the Fra Angelico painting and the Southwell, right, oh, yeah.
1: right. Yeah, and I also wanted to share um, one thing I didn't mention yet about this image is just this lovely detail of this book that's on Mary's lap, and that became a really common way to represent the scene. It would show um, Mary in this solitary act of reading, and um, yeah, of course, it's anachronistic, and the historical Mary, we don't know, but probably couldn't read. There's some traditions that said she was learned and that she was literate, and um, but in the in the Middle Ages, especially in the West, she's shown with this book that, you know, resembles the small books of ours that were being um, that were really popularized during the Middle Ages and as women's literacy increased during these centuries. And, um, you know, women's religious orders expanded this annunciation, the image of the annunciation and Mary reading became an inspiration to these women and a validation of their own vocations and their own um, desire to learn and to read scripture and study.
0: Um, I love that. And another uh, wonderful thing about the, the book, the use of the book, which is, um, you know it's a book of prayers but it's also as you were saying a symbol for for learning specifically is that um it really highlights how oh, so many medieval theologians and folks thought of the annunciation as a moment um specifically of learning which i think is is so interesting because we don't typically think of this as like a learning moment or or something like that but Um, So Thomas Aquinas uh, writes of this moment as learning and uh, the the Harvard theologian Mark Jordan has this great little pithy quote that I I think of when I see these these little books on Mary's lap, which is um, Mary learned in the Annunciation and then responded to it in place of all human nature. So Mary is human nature learning here. Gabriel was her teacher, a mediator repairing the wrong done in Eden by a fallen angel. So the Annunciation reverses the first act of deceitful teaching, the sophistry of the serpent. So in in the fall, we have this sort of bad learning, the, the forbidden knowledge, the tree. And um, in the Annunciation, we have uh, Mary with her book of hours reading, a woman reading, which as you said is kind of a big deal and um, this learning in the place of all human nature. And I just love that image.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I didn't prepare any images for this, but in the East, um, instead of with the book um, in Orthodox icons, Mary is often shown um, with a spindle of scarlet thread and, or with a pitcher of water or mm. standing at a well. And the reason for that is because um, there's this apocryphal text called the Pro-Evangelion of James, which was um, written around the second century. And that became hugely popular in the East, especially. And... um, and that um, kind of backfills a lot of Mary's story since, um, you know, there's not a whole lot about Mary in the in the canonical scriptures. And so there's this desire to like know more about her upbringing and who she was. And so um, the writer of this text said that she was actually... Um, Um, Given, dedicated to God um, to to service in the temple by her parents when she was only three years old and so she was raised in the temple and one of her jobs there was to weave the scarlet and purple thread into the temple veil and um, so that text also um, has its own version of the Annunciation which draws on Luke's but innovates somewhat and um, it says that Gabriel, she first heard Gabriel's voice when she was she was Um, weaving one day at her home at the home of Joseph and then she um, she went out to get a drink of water at the well and she heard Gabriel's voice saying hail hail and she's like what is it and so she ran back inside and like sat back down and continued her weaving and that's when Gabriel came to her um, in human form and told her you know you know (laughs) what it says in luke and so you know you've been chosen to bear the son of god and so there's a this initial greeting at the well where she which kind of scares her and then she um there's a physical appearance and so um that's why you'll see a lot of times in icon she has the thread so it's harking to that tradition that she that that was one of her responsibilities
0: (laughs) that's so great yeah um So another um, thing I wanted to, well, I want to return to this idea of creation as well. Um, in a minute but before I did that with the Fra Angelico I wanted to ask you okay is that the hand of God up in the the window (laughs) I mean in the sun I mean basically
1: it it is it's the hands of God that's kind of shooting forth these rays of light and you can see kind of like where the middle column bisects the image is the little dove who's flying into um, towards Mary representing of course the Holy Spirit but, yeah, and there's um there's this carved tondo also above the center column that um, most of our historians say that this represents God the Father. And I think that's probably a safe guess, although um, in one of Fra Angelico's earlier, Um, images of the annunciation the Cortona altarpiece that space is occupied by Isaiah and he's holding Mm. a scroll so I don't know maybe it's Isaiah but maybe it's meant to be oh interesting (laughs) well that
0: would be that would make so much sense since so many of the Isaiah prophecies are um, in reference to this moment and in now okay another question is that a bird like sitting on a line or okay what's the story with that?
1: So I was looking into this. I wasn't sure if there was like a specific symbolism or what type of bird that is. Most people identify it as just an ordinary swallow And I think it's just, in general, supposed to be a herald of springtime, um, the spring that is coming through the incarnation. But there's a lot of bird symbolism in religious art as well. I've heard some people say it's a magpie. I don't know. I couldn't find much. It looks
0: really small to be a magpie. I don't know. (laughs)
1: But yeah, it's just this like cute little naturalistic. It's detail, really cute. But, but that also, like you said, a lot of times as naturalism became um, during the Renaissance, this was kind of at the beginning of the Renaissance. As it became more of um, something that artists pursued, there is still a desire to to read into these naturalistic things a symbolism as well. <laughs> so yes, yes.
0: Well, I, I feel like none of these artists just did stuff randomly. Um, mm-hmm. They were always thinking about how they could open up um, meaning and the word of God, and um, and then enclose it again in further meaning. <laughs> so yes, um, and
1: also there, um, it's hard to see it in the image that I have, but on the left, the, just the details of all the foliage and the lawn and yes. the trees and the fruit is amazing. It's and beautiful. so this this altarpiece is now at a museum at the Prado Museum in Madrid, and so I saw it in person right after its restoration and it's just it's just such a wonder to look at like a technical wonder but also just the spiritual meaning of it it just it, it really moves me and Mary's you know posture of submission which is also an act of agency and um yeah i just really love it
0: <laughs> i love it too and it reminds me of another uh, another medieval um, thought about the Annunciation and and they're tying it super close to creation and Genesis and um, Eve is that um, in the Vulgate Bible, which is the the Latin Bible that medieval Christians used um, before vernacular translations really became a thing. Um, when Mary says let it let it be unto me, basically she uses the the word fiat, which Ooh. is Latin for let it be. Oh, or, or may it be so. Um, and that is the same word uh, in the Vulgate translation of Genesis when God says, let there be light and there was light. So fiat, fiat. So this word took on importance and tied these two moments together where it was creation and then um, Mary's co-creation um, and her participation in the redemption of the world. And so I that's something else that I just love about this echoing imagery of Mary with creation, with all this beautiful um, garden scenery in this yes, piece. That that's so
1: gorgeous. I love that. Yeah. The idea that God's let it be in the beginning and now Mary's let it be, which is initiating a new beginning. Yes. So it's like a, a new creation and, yes. and it's her word that, that it all hangs on. And of course, you know, God's initiative, but, um, through Mary. And so, <laughs>
0: Yes, and that's why the what you were pointing out um that Mary's act of submission here we we can have such a negative response to the idea of submission today, especially um in American Christianity and um, because partially because of how it's been wielded against women Mm -hmm. for so many centuries, but these twin fiats, these twin creative fiats remind us that Mary um, has powerful agency here and that, um, that her consent is, is a major part of this uh, of, of the incarnation, which is so uh, amazing and powerful to think about. Um, And Uh, And just a new kind of a reminder of that we've kind of doled down submission into this thing that (laughs) can be pretty gross at times. Mm -hmm. But that this that the submission of Mary is something wild and life changing and totally filled with um, with agency here. So,
1: right, right. Yeah, and I love how in the in the poem that you read the first stanza of by Robert Sothwell, um, the second stanza says, "O virgin breath, the heavens to the incline. And it, and it goes on. So here you kind of see Gabriel inclining towards Mary and <laughs> heaven kind of breaking forth on Mary. And there's this idea that Mary. So heaven is now in Mary's womb, in a sense, because if heaven is wherever God is and God is now <laughs> in Mary's womb, Um there's a sense in which, yeah, heaven is is her is her womb, and so I love that image as well.
0: That's wonderful. Do you want to share the next one with us, or
1: yeah, I'd love to. So, um, moving forward a few centuries, I wanted to uh, discuss Henry Osawa Tanner's Annunciation from 1898, and he is an African American artist who was born in Pittsburgh shortly before the Civil War. And um, he ended up um, moving to, to France to escape discrimination. and But he painted to really great international acclaim and um, biblical subjects were what he um, became most famous for. And this was his first major painting on a biblical subject. And he painted this the year after he returned from a six-week trip to the Holy Land. And so he was very interested in bringing some kind of historical authenticity to his paintings. You know, he wanted, um, uh, the ethnicity to be believable and the setting to be believable. And so he was um, informed very much by his trip and by the sketches he did there and the homes that he had visited. And in fact, the, there's a rug in this painting and there are some ceramic vessels and those are things that he had brought back with him from Palestine. Mm. Um, and he, he painted from, from those. And so what this image shows is it shows um. You know, a young Jewish uh, Mary from from Israel with dark hair. She's in her bedroom. She's sitting on her bed and the sheets are all kind of, um, you know, tussled and Um, there's a red cloth that's hung around her bed and there's um, it's a very spartan chamber it's just um, you know a shelf with the you know a few jars on it um, some drapery and just a a stone floor and plaster walls that's kind of peeling Um, but what makes one of the things that makes this uh, painting so diverge so much from tradition is how the artist has chosen to represent Gabriel and it's as this shaft of light it's just this this really luminous line that just kind of you know cuts into this space and it's at the left side of the image and um which is an interesting choice for a a painter who uh, is typically a realist what you would call a realist painter and he was um his teacher was Thomas Eakins, the famous American realist painter, but here he didn't want to anthropomorphize Gabriel. He wanted something more mysterious. And I think also that this choice to show Gabriel as a beam of light, it harks back to um, the pillar of fire that led Mm -hmm. uh, Moses and the Israelites through the desert into the promised land. And so I see in this, um, the idea that Christ in his incarnation has come, um, this is the presence of God come to lead his people, um, to rest to the promised land out of their, their slavery to sin. Um, and so Mary's kind of looking at this beam with, um, I, I sense in her face, some trepidation and Mm -hmm. she's kind of clenching Mm -hmm. her hands together.
0: I immediately Um, noticed her hands. I mean, look, at there's tension in her fingers. She's not, uh, she's not relaxed she's listening intently and there's some nerves there too
1: right and so I wanted to show this as a counterpart to the other images where it seems like it's focusing more at the end of the encounter where she submits this is slightly before she decides how to respond she's kind of weighing and reflecting on what the angel's saying um and as people, as you read the, the passage from Luke, you'll see that Mary kind of cycles through um, these different emotions and reactions throughout the course of that encounter because um, I wrote down the word, um, was it perturbed or there was, um, I fr- it said that she was perplexed by the saying mm. um, she was, um, so she had this perplexity and then she um, questions. She, she inquires, like how, how can this be? Um, and so it's kind of like an honest doubt and, um, which is not antithetical to faith because after, um, you know, the angel tells her, she's like, okay, I'll, yes. do, it. I'll do it. And I mean, um, that's why
0: Mary is, I mean, one of the ways in which she, uh, is imitatable, I guess, is that mm-hmm. she's not like jumping up and down or like, um, yes absolutely like right away but that she's at first withdrawn slightly and she's at first pondering Mm. this and and thinking it over and so she's she's human she's got such a human even though I mean it's like super courageous and and super um open to the Lord but but her humanity is also there and I I really like that about this portrayal as well is that she looks so human
1: Yeah, and I found that a lot of um, contemporary artists, so this was, you know, I guess you could call it an early modern painting, but as you get into um, like the later modern and contemporary eras, a lot of people seem to, they also have like a hesitance to just show like the straightforward submission, and they tend to be more attracted to her emotional state before that submission. And so they might show her um, you know, curled onto her bed in the fetal position or like in, a, which isn't necessarily new because even in the middle ages, like one of the ways to show Mary, um, other than her arms crossed would have been like with her arms, like, um, flown up, like in surprise or, um, or in fear yeah or in fear and Mm -hmm. even like clenching her 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 robe or her veil like tighter to her body in this gesture of like self-protection or modesty like this is someone who's intruding on her space like it's someone she was not expecting and so yeah I see that as a corollary to the times when you know God will you know speak into our lives um, maybe through someone else or, um, or just through, uh, through a sense of like divine guidance. And like, we feel uh, called toward a certain thing, whether it's, you know, a particular vocation or called to, to perform a particular task or to whatever it might be. And so that, that call can be scary. And, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, not to compare that to like, <laughs> the, the magnificence <laughs> of like what married but like in a small way yeah um, like the ways that we are called to like listen to God's voice and obey yeah we can definitely look to Mary as as a model for that
0: yes absolutely
1: but um yeah and so the last image I wanted to show um oh there's a detail of Mary that I took at the Philadelphia Art Museum.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. The close-up. I don't think I've yes. ever seen it that close-up before. So yeah. she, Victoria's showing just a, an ex, a very close-up of Mary, and you can really see the tension in her hands and the questioning on her face, okay. where the, the gospel word perplexed is a good word here. She's figuring out what's going on.
1: Yes. And so... I wanted to now discuss this image um, that actually hangs over in my living room wall. I bought this um, from an Indian artist, Jodi Sahib, two years ago. And uh, he calls it incarnation within the ant hill. And Mm. so it's from 2019. He had just finished painting it when I had gone to, to visit him, to meet him for the first time. He lives in South India, about an hour outside Bangalore. And he's really interested in um, what you might call eco theology, like um, a concern for um, like the environment and like a very earthy Christianity. And um, he is a Christian artist. His his mother was Christian, his father was Hindu, and he em- embraces the Christian faith. Although he does qualify, he calls himself a non-conformist Catholic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but this is his image. He says this is an Annunciation image for him, and it shows Mary in the shape of a, of a termite mound, mm. which I, I didn't know what that was until I visited. It. But apparently, um, like in South India, termites build these really hard, um, structures that are quite tall, like life, life size are tall, like two to three times life size. Um, and they're these hard structures that they live in. And in India, they are considered sacred. And, um, so even in the, um, in the Vedic text and in Indian folk belief they're referred to as the ears of the earth huh. he says that these mounds can kind of hear and sense and so um he's he points out that he's drawn Mary's womb kind of in the shape of an ear and um the fetus Jesus the fetus is inside and so this is kind of her um hearing the word and conceiving the word. Hmm. And so it's a play on that, uh, the word word, the word of God, um, which of course is, a, is an English translation of the Greek concept of logos. And so there are two, so Mary is, uh, these are bright, vibrant oranges. It's kind of this triangular structure. Um, and then the fetus curled inside her womb and out of it is growing this tree of life and um at the left side there's you know bright blues and greens it's um an image of life and there are two white birds that are that are flying and these are called hamsas. it's a mythical bird um that's from indian lore and their shape somewhat resembles the syllable om like you know when you you know you hear cartoons meditate and they're like om mm-hmm. so that syllable is um a primordial sound the primordial sound and there's this whole philosophy to go into what om the significance is but for Jody, he's linking that idea of om to logos mm. and so this is like the word that was before the ground of um reason and being and it's being spoken to Mary and it's being um conceived in her womb and so um yeah, I just, I just love this image and I love how earthy it is. And it kind of shows Jesus, you know, taking root. Um,
0: it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, And so, um, I actually, I have a poem that I wanted to read that I think connects well with this and it's called, um, it's annunciation by Scott Carnes. And, um, it's in his book called *Idiot Psalms* from 2014, and um, it's a sonnet. And so it goes deep within the clay, and oh, my people, very deep within the hole in earthen compound of our kind, arrives of one clear star illumined evening, a spark igniting once again the tinder of our lately banked noetic fire. She burns, but she is not consumed. The dew lights gently suffusing the pure fleece. The wall comes down. And do you feel the pulse? We all become the kindled kindred of a king whose birth thereafter bears to all a bright nativity. And so like the alliteration in those last few lines, the kindled kindred of a king, and then the birth bears bright. And so this idea that this birth... um, is bearing us all to birth. So like, just as Mary conceives Christ, um, physically, like in the flesh, in her body, we are called to conceive Christ spiritually in our souls and to be reborn in him. And um, and you probably recognize some of the images we talked about earlier with the burning bushes that the Gideon's fleece makes its way into this poem.
0: So. Yes, this is like a great flashback to the first image that we started with, <laughs> the unicorn image. It's tying together these ancient medieval um, and early ideas in, in this modern poem. I love that. And I love too the, uh, the alliteration because uh, again, also so many uh, medieval poets wrote alliteratively and so it's really bringing together these these ancient traditions and this ancient image and and casting it anew I love that
1: yeah and if you'll allow me one last poem I wanted to share one by Kathleen Norris called She Said Yeah and it's from a cycle of poems called Mysteries of the Incarnation and so um The poet is an oblate, which is a lay member of a Benedictine monastery in the Midwest. And so that's the setting of this prose poem. The land lies open, summer fallow, hayfield, pasture. Folds of cloud mirror buttes, knife-edged in shadow. One monk smears honey on his toast. Another peels an orange. A bell rings three times as the Angelus begins, bringing to mind Gabriel and Mary. She said, yeah, the Rolling Stones sang from a car on the interstate. She said, yeah. And the bells pick it up, many bells now, saying it to Mechtild, the barn cat, pregnant again, to Ephraim's bluebirds down the draw, to the grazing cattle and monks, virgins, some of them, eating silently before the sexy tongue of a hibiscus blossom at the refectory window she said yeah and then the angel left her (laughs) and so I love just this picture of the renewal of all things that was made possible by the incarnation and just how the reverberations of Mary's yeah are just um the poet hears them in you know ordinary things um Like, you know, the lyric of a rock song from the Rolling Stones coming from the car window, this love song. She said, yeah, or just like the curve of a hibiscus that she calls sexy and um, just like the monks, you know, spreading honey on their toast. And it's just um, the story of the incarnation is still continuing and Christ is being, you know, reborn. And the Angelus is a is a prayer that said in the morning, noon and night um, that just, um, it pays respect to the, the mystery of the incarnation. So that's what that references.
0: Beautiful. And I think that, um, that it w- I was listening to you reading Kathleen Norris's poem and thinking to myself, she's finding the Annunciation in ordinary places. Um, and, and this, this idea of saying yes, and of the rebirth of the world, and um so maybe in honor of the of all of the enunciations we've looked at and, and thought through uh, maybe this week, uh, if if you're listening or watching, if if you want to start looking for enunciation, where are you seeing it? Um, where is it appearing? Is it in a song? Is it um in poetry or in an image specifically? And and this could be in secular as well as religious art. Um the Lord speaks to us through all kinds of mediums and um these these poems and these these beautiful paintings and and art remind us of that um of the gift of the annunciation so um victoria that was so wonderful and i learned so much especially about the contemporary stuff which i have no clue about so that was really fun to see um it almost felt liturgical in the drawing together of time past and time present and um, bringing uh, all of these, the, the ancient images and the modern images together. And I so appreciated that. But um, if listeners or viewers want to learn more, do you have some other resources that you could suggest that people can go to um, to get more information and learn more?
1: Yeah, so first um as Grace shared at the beginning, my blog artandtheology.org, um it really does uh what I what I try to do here which I'm glad that you you see it Grace is try to bring together old and new and see um you know, biblical art of today as part of a lineage um and even when it's created um even when the art is not by a person of faith, it can still have a lot to teach us. And um, I, but I really love like looking back to to earlier eras and just kind of recovering just these gifts and resources that artists have left us, that poets have left us. And so um, art and theology, I, I, um, I try to post about once a week and I do share poetry there and I share um, images from exhibitions I go to and just from artists I'm meeting. Um, But specifically about the Annunciation, I wanted to recommend a book called The Annunciation of Pilgrim's Quest by Mark Byford. And it's quite a hefty book, it's like (laughs) 600 some pages. But it's so accessible, and so I, you can find a review of this on my blog, um, but it came out a few years ago, and he's a journalist from the UK, and he went um, uh, to several countries interviewing all these people about the meaning of the Annunciation, and what it means to them, and so some of these people were theologians or pastors, and some were artists or poets or filmmakers even, and so he's engaging a lot with um, poetry and art, And he um, interviews like a lot of feminists, like how do they read the Annunciation? And it's interesting to see like, even those who identify as feminists, like read it in different ways. And so um, he collects a lot of those interviews in this book and just presents them as this beautiful narrative and there's full color images throughout. And so that's one resource I recommend if you're kind of interested in just getting a lot of people's takes on, you know, like, you know, what's so significant about the Annunciation or, Yeah, and so if you're interested in visual art in particular, on the Annunciation, there's a book called Divine Conception, The Art of the Annunciation. And it's a beautifully produced book um, with a ribbon marker. It's a hardcover, and it shows um, this author... um, yeah, it's 12 chapters just kind of exploring the Annunciation in art. And she doesn't do it chronologically, she does it by like theme or element. Oh, cool. So there's a chapter, for example, on the Virgin as reader in images of the Annunciation. And there's this idea um, kind of that Jody's painting harks to is the idea of conceptio per orum, the idea that Jesus was conceived through the channel of the ear. Hmm. So there's a whole um, chapter that traces that in art history. Oh, amazing. Um, so yeah, that, and then last. There's um, a collection of poems called Annunciation, 16 Contemporary Poets Consider Mary. And so this one is from 2015 from Phoenicia Publishing. And so it's edited by Elizabeth Adams, who commissioned 16 poets to respond to Luke's narrative of the Annunciation um, or, or just to the Annunciation in general. And what's interesting about it is that the poets come from all different religious backgrounds. And so, um, and it's mostly women. So Muslim women, Jewish women, um, you know, atheist women, and they're all, it's a great collection of poems. And some of them have written multiple poems, um, and all on that topic.
0: Wonderful. I actually am going to order those books ASAP because they all look (laughs) so great and interesting. So thank you for sharing those resources with us and I'll make sure to have uh, the links up for those as well um, with their information on oldbookswithgrace.com for anybody who is interested in that. Well, maybe not the links since I've mentioned before I'm trying to avoid Amazon, but uh, <laughs> the authors' names so that you don't have to frantically be looking for a pen right now to scribble them down. So great, great, yeah. Um, and then, uh, do you have any like social media that interested folks can keep up with what you're up to?
1: Yeah. So right now, I'm probably most active on Instagram, and that's at art underscore and underscore theology. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, I use that to post pieces of visual art and just to, just to teach about those images, but I'm also on Twitter at art and theology and I'm on Facebook. Uh, art and theology has a Facebook page. I think it's just at art and theology. Um, and I will post my blog post there if you want to follow me that way.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. That would be great. And Victoria, thank you so much for coming on and for all of the the prep you put into um, sharing these pieces of art and making them really accessible to us. And we so appreciate thank it. Thank you for
1: having you. me. I really enjoyed it. It
0: was, a, it was <laughs> our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I hope you guys um, found today's lecture and conversation with Victoria's interesting and enlightening and um, and peace bringing as I did. Um, it would be great if you enjoyed this conversation, if you could rate the podcast or subscribe, I really appreciate it. And it helps other people find old books with grace. You could also follow me on Instagram or Twitter. My Instagram handle is at oldbookswithgrace, and my Twitter is gracehammondphd, and I would love to hear your thoughts and get to know you on through those venues. Thanks again for listening, and next week will be a Thanksgiving break, and then the week after that, we'll start a new series on Advent and Christmas carols, so I'm excited for that. Thanks.